in. To the Weekend Variety Wireless with Ryan Bradley in for Graham Hill on Radio Live. This is the Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. Nice to have your company this evening. We gaze to the stars. First of all this evening, Grant Christie is standing by outside the studio. What's happening out there in the world? What are we discovering? An explanation on what is a star. I know when I go outside, I just think they're all stars. That was until I met Dr. Grant Christie. Don't confuse a star for a planet. And can we see all the other things? Are they visible to the naked eye? The things that aren't stars, the nebulae, for example. Well, we'll find out in astronomy coming up next here on Radio Live. Max Cryer is in tonight after nine o'clock. The meaning of the word vote and a tricky one for Max. He's been scratching his head all week about the meaning of the word quantum. Find out what it does mean after nine. We'll also speak with playwright Julia Croft about a play that she has made with Virginia Frankovich and Nisha Madan. The name of it is Medusa. Currently on in Wellington as part of the Matchbox 2018 series and in Auckland from October. We'll get all the details before 10 o'clock tonight with Julia Croft. Human statistics with Jonathan Dodd after 10 and James Crute through to talk kids' movies. Then we'll take the latest financial advice from Gary Stone from Share Wealth Systems in Australia. All coming up tonight. Ryan Bradley in the chair filling in for Graham Hill. Nice to be with you. We gaze to the stars next on Radio Live. Life, the universe, and everything in between. The Weekend Variety Wireless with Ryan Bradley in for Graham Hill on Radio Live. Astronomy Today with Dr. Grant Christie. Dr. Grant Christie, good evening. Hi, Ryan. I'd like to start with what's a little bit embarrassing. I popped in last week when I saw you. I came with a rock and I said to you, I think this rock's from space, but it's not. How many rocks are there that have, that have fallen in New Zealand from space and why was mine not? Okay, well, first of all, the number found in New Zealand is about is actually nine. There's nine that, nine. Are, that are actually very validated. Rare. It's very rare to find one. Um, the most recent one found uh, actually hit a house in Ellerslie. It came through the roof of a house in Ellerslie. It was about the size of a grapefruit. It wow. Was, it attracted worldwide attention with news all over the world because it's very rare for a meteorite to actually hit somebody or something on the ground, like occasionally one's hit a car and things like that, but they're rare and therefore highly valued by collectors who collect meteors, mm -hmm. meteorites. And uh, so so that's the most recent one. Uh, that's that's probably, the, you know, the beautiful example of a, 
Um, and my my one had uh, obviously evidence of, of gases and, and sort of air yes. holes in it, didn't it? Okay, so your one had been, uh, uh, and, and it, it's, it's one that's easy to be fooled. I mean, I've been presented with lots of rocks uh, and uh, <laughs> people thinking, is this a meteorite? Yes. Uh, your one was slightly more convincing than most, I might say. But uh, usually uh, if, if, there's, is, if they've got voids inside them, then they there's something earth, and in other words, they've got sort of little holes and things inside them because meteorites don't. I mean, basically, the way they're formed in space means you can't have that. And so, and also, it's, it's, it's not really dense enough to be a typical meteorite. Meteorites have a fairly high iron content. Yep. So you pick them up, but your one was, you know, heavier than an average rock, so that was a, a sort of a fair enough guess. Mm. Um, the West Coast beaches in New Zealand, uh, in particular around the sort of the northern part of the uh, country, have got a lot of this iron sand. I mean, it's, mm. it's goes from, you know, sort of uh, all the way down. And it's a wild coast. And what was brought to New Zealand in the colonial era were clipper ships that came bringing passengers and taking wool away. Mm. And these these vessels were had to be stabilised so they didn't fall over, basically. They had to have ballast in their hold. Mm. And coming from Britain, fairly unloaded, they would often use slag from iron foundries and stuff in Britain. Britain was in the start of its industrial revolution and this was just rubbish mm. and they got it for nothing. So they just fill their hold with this, these chunks of iron from smelters and when the ship like that founded on the coast, they, it spilled all that stuff out there and, it, and it's still washing up today. We still find these bits today that some of them are lot, look a lot more like they've come from a foundry, like they're big sort mm. of blobs of molten stuff, but uh, your one didn't quite have that. But it, it probably was material that came from a shipwreck in the distant past century, in the last century. That rock that came through the living room of that house in Ellerslie, what was that worth? Ah, well, yes. Uh, well, I understand. Uh, the Auckland Museum purchased it because uh, they're just they're basically on the open market for something like that, and it was very notable. I think they paid around the fifty, sixty thousand dollars for that. Whew. So that was a nice find. Um, yeah, fifty thousand dropping through your roof. Yeah, myself and another Auckland astronomer, Jenny McCormick, attended there shortly after it had hit. Um, and uh, it was quite extraordinary. Big, you know, a hole in the roof where this object had smashed through, broken rafters, came through the plaster ceiling, filled the lounge full of um, fine um, plaster dust uh, from the ceiling. Mm. Um, uh, hit a couch, tore a hole in the couch, hit the hit the hit the leather couch, bounced up, hit the ceiling again, left another dent, and then rolled onto the floor and under a little table. And so the owner lady was uh, in the kitchen nearby and got a hell of a shock. And she she found this warm, still quite warm uh, rock that had uh, just fallen through. Wow! Um, so when it hit the ground in space, they're travelling like 10 kilometres per second, maybe up to 20, 30 kilometres per second when they hit the atmosphere. But by the time they slowed down by the atmosphere, cooled off a bit. Um, then they they're just in free fall for about the last 20 30 kilometers so mm. they're just dropping down through the atmosphere which is cold up there so they cool off fairly quickly uh, and they hit the ground at about what we call terminal velocity about if you took a brick up 20 kilometers and just dropped it that's about the speed it would hit the ground so they're not hitting mm. the ground at space speeds or they're hitting the ground at f basically a free fall speed that somebody falling from a great height would hit the ground. Still at. enough to kill you though if it struck you. Oh yes, and but it's extremely rare. Uh, there was an episode mm. I think in the eight, 19th century, 18th century where 
a bunch of uh, a herd of cows were killed by a, a hail of meteorites. Oh. Uh, so, of course, people at that time didn't have a good idea about what those sort of things were and found all these um, these stones that sort of killed the thing. So, but that's, uh, the, these are exceptionally rare and most of them fall in the ocean. New Zealand's a lousy place to look for meteorites because it's covered with bush. It's got a lot of water around it. So the chance of finding a meteorite in New Zealand is very small. Better luck next time for Better me luck, yeah. on uh, the beaches of Raglan where I picked that rock up. Uh, let's actually go into space and talk about the Comet 21P, our picture of the week. This is a time-lapse picture uh, of this comet moving across the sky. Yes, uh, there's a, it, is, it is a periodic comet. It comes around regularly. It's all got a fairly short orbital period, about six years around the sun, so it's, uh, the fact it's visible in the sky is not unusual. It's not bright enough to be seen by eye, uh, but uh, you'd need a telescope to see it. Mm. And uh, the, the people who did this image uh, simply pointed their telescope at the sky and took a whole series <laughs> of images and as the comet was moving along, they made it into a little movie film. Uh, so it really shows the comet. It's got a noticeable tail. Um, and uh, the tail is, the direction of the tail is, is basically facing away from the sun. It's not nothing much to do with the direction that the, the comet's moving. It's not like seeing something going through the atmosphere. You'd have, if you had a flaming thing coming through the atmosphere, all the smoke would be coming out the back because of the air pressure in the atmosphere. In space, there's no atmosphere. The effect is simply the pressure of the light from the sun pushing on the atoms in, this, uh, in the tail. So the tail is basically always facing away from the sun. Mm. So sometimes they can be moving against the stars and going tail first. It just depends on your point, you know, the way you're looking at it. Okay, that's, a, that's an interesting picture and it's up on the website now. Comet 21P, a small time lapse of it moving across the sky. Let's get on to our topics. There's, well, a super Earth has been discovered, I say in quotational marks, in the uh, Vulcan system. What's this about? Is this fictional or fact? <laughs> <laughs> well, this is a uh, an interesting story. The um, uh, um, the author of the uh, Star Wars series, um, Gene Roddenberry. Gene Roddenberry. He 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 sort of visualised this home of Spock, and so as sort of a it's a tongue in cheek thing, really, because the basically what the uh, uh, what astronomers were looking at was something that kind of what was planted out there today with a star that kind of matched what Rodenbury was sort of imagining in his mind. And uh, so they do find the star, it's called Forty Eridani, um, and uh, it's a sort of naked eye star, a mm. um, few hundred light years from Earth, and it had about the right characteristics that match Rodenbury's sort of vision. And uh, so now they've actually found a planet that's uh, it's it's heavier than Earth, uh, orbiting this uh, star, which is which is the reason for the interest. Um, uh, it wasn't why they were looking at that star in particular; just mm. they're looking at all stars, looking for planets. But this planet's a couple of times the mass of the Earth, which makes it uh, quite a different thing. It's about five times more massive, so it's probably a lot of water on that planet as well. Um, and so it probably isn't doesn't have life. It's also sort of orbiting pretty close to its star, so it'll be pretty warm as well. Okay, why has the uh, what's going on with Elon Musk? He's he's looking into space travel, but you're saying he's saying he can get to the moon, but will we one day be able to visit? Uh, step on it. 
Yes. Yeah, well, that, that's really the catch. At the moment, he's got this plan, and uh, given his track record, it might well come off, um, of uh, sending tourists around the moon. And he's, he's already signed up the first one, a, billion, a Japanese billionaire, uh, who has then bought all the seats on his plane. I think it's about 12 space plane, about 12 seats, and uh, he's going to hand them out free to various people to come along with him on this trip around the moon. Have they got a departure date, or is this uh, just... It's, it's, I don't know what the plan is, but it's 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 definitely uh, on the books. I mean, it's uh, probably in a few years. Uh, they've got a big enough rocket now. He's demonstrated the rocket. He already biffed his, uh, his Tesla into orbit. Uh, so, oh, of you know, course. that's, uh, that's right. He, he's it's a more he's got a more powerful rocket than the Saturn V was that launched the Apollo missions, um, and uh, the concept pictures of his uh, capsule look uh, kind of. But how long will it take to get to the moon? Because you know, I only get four weeks annual leave. <laughs> oh, it's, it... it's it's actually quite quick. It's about a three day. The transfer from Earth orbit to the moon is about three days. Oh, really? And then you might, if assuming you go into orbit around the moon for a while before coming back. Apollo eight didn't go into orbit. It just went round the moon once, did a loop, and came back again. So that was the first episode. And uh, Apollo ten. Uh, also went to the moon and it did go into orbit around the moon but didn't land. So the, there's plenty of precedence for that. So you could do it in a week? Oh, yes. No, it's, it's a relatively quick trip. I mean, you'd be up there, you know, by the time you get to the launch and did the launch and came back again. Uh, it's... Uh, <clears throat> um, I don't know that I'd opt to do it. I wouldn't be the first person <laughs> to do it, probably. I'm a bit of a chicken with things like that. But... Uh, but it would, it would be an extraordinary sight to be on that flight and to be able to look down on the surface of the moon, particularly if they get into orbit around it for a little while and then sort of fire off and come back, in which case you can get a really good look. Otherwise, you're only there for a few hours and then you're on your way back again. That's mm. not very long for... They really need to just gift a, a <laughs> seat on that rocket to one of the flat earthers just to, <laughs> just, to, just so that they can... Uh, no, they would just prove, encourage prove. them. They would just encourage <laughs> them. You don't want to do that. But right. Yeah, so the, the the other issue is, you know, what would be involved, the next step would be what would be involved in actually landing people on the moon. That's an incredibly complicated thing to do. The Apollo astronauts were all test pilots. Um, the LEM that they used to land on the moon uh, underwent a whole series of, uh, of redesign changes. So basically in the Apollo era, they originally, the original concept was to send the spacecraft there and the whole spacecraft would just land down on the moon. But then they found that the actual physics of it and the cost was enormous to do that, um, the sort of vessel you'd need. So they came up with this idea of having a separate little module, very light, that mm. would just carry two guys and they would be standing up, no seats, no nothing, and just bring this little light thing down onto the surface of the moon. Because gravity's pretty weak and, uh, you know, you don't have to make the thing super strong. But if you want to land something with 12 people on it, you are in a different world altogether. And the mm. cost of the LEM, that little landing vehicle that they did for Apollo, which carried two people, was a big percentage of the cost of the uh, of the whole Apollo mission. It was a very expensive thing. So actually getting people onto the surface is a huge big step into the future. Mm. So they're, they're not ready for that. Although Elon Musk pictures sort of show this big rocket sort of sitting on the surface of the moon and that's his vision and little sort of tourist centres there and so on that they could visit. Maybe in many decades to come that will be possible, but at the moment... Uh, but technically right now they could do a flight around the moon. Wow. And uh, I'd be very excited to see people do try to do that. But not put your hand up. No, 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 no. You're no. just happy gazing from I, I down probably, here. I'd probably fail a physical anyway. <laughs> OK, when is a star not a star? 
Right, this is a, um, that's when it's a, what we call a brown dwarf. So there's, um, uh, so stars are like our sun is made mainly of hydrogen and helium and because it's so massive, uh, the, the gravity presses the material in the centre so much that it actually allows nuclear reactions to start. So hydrogen is being transformed into helium in the middle of the sun, in the deep in the core, and that's producing a huge amount of energy, which is what fires a star up. Mm. Um, but as you drop, if you look at stars with less and less mass in the sun, coming down and down and down, um, and you get down to around about eight percent of the sun's mass, then you're just at the limit. If you drop it too much below about eight percent of the sun's mass, then the pressure at the centre isn't enough to sustain those nuclear reactions. They may be going little fits and starts for little times, but basically they fizzle out and don't carry on. So those stars are end up, those objects end up as dim things without, um, with just radiating. They radiate heat, but infrared, but nothing like the sort of brightness that we'd expect from a star. So there's a big change. And we call those failed stars, uh, we call them brown dwarfs. Um, yes. Just because they're basically, you know, well, we had to call them something. Um, mm. And uh, the sun's a yellow dwarf, uh, but it's uh, a lot brighter. So so the the question is, that what what mass does that change happen? What What is the smallest mass you can have and still have nuclear action mm. sustained? And that's what these astronomers are trying to do. And they've been looking at several stars in this category and these are in the range of um, about uh, 75, well, around about 7.5% uh, of the sun up to uh, in, in that range, about 7.5% mm. of the sun's mass. Uh, a little bit below the 8% which you often read in books. Um, now in terms of Jupiter, for example, uh, that means it's something that's about 70, 75% the mass of Jupiter. Mm. So that's a, clearly much bigger than a planet um, and so it falls into this category of what astronomers call brown dwarfs. So astronomers are trying to understand that that transition from uh, the the heavy brown dwarf into a very low mass star. What what's happening there? It looks like the uh, it, it could be a fuzzy separation. It's not like a sharp separation, and mm. the fuzziness could be caused by the fact that. Um, not all stars are made of exactly the same stuff. They're uh, mainly hydrogen and helium, but they have different amounts of other stuff. And so uh, if, and then it could be the amount of extra stuff. Our sun has about one and a half percent of its total mass is stuff other than hydrogen and helium. Um, mostly hydrogen and helium, obviously, but, uh, uh, but some stars could have two, two and a half percent of the, what the sun's got, or they could have less than half a percent. So, when, so I, when I look to the sky at night, there are planets obviously the moon if it's up and then the rest of them I just call stars uh, uh, am I actually looking at stars? Yeah, yeah, you are, because uh, brown dwarfs, you, there's no brown dwarf anywhere near bright enough to be seen by your eye so right. everything, everything apart from the sun and the moon and the planets that you can see in the sky and occasionally a bright comet are basically are absolutely their stars and some yep. of them are extremely luminous stars because you can't tell how far away they are just by looking at them, and this was a thing that sort of bedeviled astronomers for centuries. Mm. Uh, they they had no idea how far away stars were until uh, really sort of really into the 19, uh, into the nineteenth century was the first time they really started to come up with a pretty good idea of star distances. And it's something that well, that's what the Gaia satellite that's currently orbiting. Uh, now and it's it's measuring star distances with mm. huge precision and it's going to be able to tell us of 1.7 billion stars it's measuring so we'll have a hugely better idea of the actual distances of those stars 
Also looking out into, into the yonder, the TESS satellite, TESS, T-E-S-S, run by NASA, this is finding thousands of planets. So I take it these are not uh, something we can see, uh, not available to the naked no, eye. No, certainly not. But uh, there's possibly 20,000 planets out there. Yeah, well, there's a lot more than that, probably. TESS is expected to find, uh, this is a new satellite, just started operation, just found its first planet of, uh, after it's finished its setup. So it was, um, it's a, a really extremely capable uh, space telescope, essentially, but its, it's telescope uh, is only about sort of uh, 10 centimetres across. It's got four of them, mm. um, and so it's uh, got a big field of view. The, you probably remember the, the Kepler satellite that NASA yep. had up. Yep. That found that found about, f from memory, about four to 5,000 planets over about a three-year period, just looking at one piece of sky. So TESS mm. is much more capable than that, and it's going to be looking over the entire sky. So, and it's it's going to find a huge number of new planets we didn't know existed. Um, and now it's found its first one. Um, there's going to be a lot more. Uh, they'll be coming thick and fast. And then telescopes on Earth will be following those up and learning a lot more about their solar systems once Tess has said there's a planet here and it's going around the sun. It's looking for Earth. Its ultimate mission is looking for uh, Earth-sized planets around sun-type stars if possible, but in its approach is a bit different to Kepler um, and uh, its um, and its mission may be extended in the future, I don't know, but it's going to be a, a sort of a, produce an avalanche of discoveries over the next uh, three or four years. More astronomy next on Radio Live. You're listening to the Weekend Variety Wireless. Curiosity not only killed the cat, it spawned a whole radio show. The Weekend Variety Wireless with Ryan Bradley in for Graham Hill on Radio Live. Dr Grant Christie is in the studio with us on the Weekend Variety Wireless and astronomy is our topic. Here's an interesting one. Ceres, this mission we discussed last weekend, it's a giant asteroid and there's a mission that's coming towards an end uh, and that's dawn. What are they just discovering now at the tail end of this mission? Right, well, if they're analysing all of the data that Dawn has collected uh, and the the subject of this new sort of paper they've put out is the uh, occurrence of what they call cryovolcanism on Ceres. Ceres is a sort of a... It's a bit heavier than an asteroid. It's what we call a dwarf planet. Um, so it actually has quite complex processes going on inside it and I was surprised actually in the paper how many of these uh, effectively ice volcanoes there are on Ceres. Um, so they've been cataloguing them. Um, one of them uh, that they have images of is something like about four kilometres above the surface. So it's actually that 4,000 metres. That's a tall body for a sm for a small object. So it's uh, a big volcano. Yeah. So and of course its gravity's weak, so they can actually hold that shape for a while. But gradually they slump down, and they find the uh, these things have been going on Ceres for at least one billion years uh, has been having this process. Um, exactly what creates all the energy inside is not entirely known. It could be just due to being bent by gravity, the sun's gravity, and other objects sort of distort it. Mm. Um, but it's clearly got heat inside it. Uh, so this actually sort of basically um, it, uh, melts ice along with other salts, making a briny mixture, salty briny mixture. And when the pressure underneath gets high enough, it just spews it out through a jet 
through cracks in the surface and it keeps doing that and it gradually builds up uh, an ice volcano. And these are seen on other objects. Um, the uh, Jupiter's moon Enceladus has these. Um, there's uh, moons of uh, Saturn and uh, Neptune. Both have examples where you have this cryovolcanism process going on. So it's, uh, they've actually been, because they've had the satellite orbiting series for quite some time, they've been able to do a very detailed study of all these different sites of cryovolcanism on the surface and uh, worked out their ages. Mars has got a few volcanoes too, doesn't it? Yes, but uh, I don't think any of the, the, none of them are cryo. So, I mean, Mars, a planet-sized object, has molten stuff inside, hmm. uh, like the Earth does and Venus does. So you see actual lava volcanoes caused by magma, sort of molten rock, yes. pushing up through cracks and so on and erupting onto the surface and building volcanoes. Of course, an object the size of, uh, of Ceres doesn't have enough mass to make rock molten like that. Mm. Uh, if something hit it from the outside, like a big asteroid ran into it, then that would that would create a momentary amount of heat and energy that would melt the surface and you'd have sort of a molten magma for a short time. But it's not coming from the interior. So the only thing you can get from the interior of these objects is kind of like um, an icy slurry that blows up into space, freezes and then just falls down, builds up kind of like a snow uh, spout coming up and gradually building up and building up. And that's what cryovolcanism is? That's what cryovolcanism is, yes. You see it uh, to a limited extent on, on comets as well, because, mm. you know, when the comet starts to get warmed by the sun, the material below the surface, they're mainly icy, basically dirty snowballs, <laughs> and they sort of, uh, when they get near the sun, they start melting the surface and the pressure of gas pockets inside them sort of expands and blows out things, and so they're... You know, that's really where the tales of comets come from. It's a sort of a form of cryovolcanism on the surface of comets. Let's move on to the Milky Way. There are patterns in the Milky Way stars suggesting there's been a recent galactic whack. So has something been thrown out here? This is... Uh, it there's a strange pattern. There's a satellite, this satellite called Gaia, which is mapping the motion of Milky Way stars, huge numbers, 1.7 billion. And they, this is me, meaning the people who look at the evolution of our galaxy can sort of work back through the history of it and figure out, well, why are these stars moving this way? And they found a big body of these stars all moving in a way that's only consistent, really, with the fact that there was about a... Within the last billion years or so, a small galaxy had uh, interacted and been absorbed and sort of... Uh, is that what you're calling apart. recent? A, a, billion... a billion years is a relatively recent uh, event as far as the Milky Way. The Milky Way okay. is probably about 12 billion years old. So, so that distinguishes things. Uh, the Milky Way's undergone many of these collisions, and you know we know a number of galaxies that are currently merging right now with mm. the Milky Way. So these are little dwarf galaxies that are being absorbed by the Milky Way, and that's how it grew to the size that it did. It did so by absorbing smaller ones and one day even the Magellanic clouds which we see in our southern sky which are both dwarf galaxies uh, they also one day might end up being in another billion or a few billion years of being absorbed by the Milky Way. So this is not a strange idea that the Milky Way was built up in this way but what this the Gaia satellites enabling astronomers to do is actually look at a big field of stars and work out which ones are moving which way 
And when you find a whole bunch of them all move in a consistent way, and then you run it through computer models and run time backwards and say, well, where would these have been in the past? Mm. You find they all came from some clump outside the Milky Way galaxy and they're, they're actually being absorbed by the Milky Way. So that's the, uh, the big power of this sort of astronomy is that uh, by measuring billions of samples and running them through supercomputers, you can actually calculate wind time backwards and say, what did it look like? a billion years ago or two billion years ago. It's really amazing what they can do with those. Absolutely. On Jupiter, let's go to the weather desk now and, and you've got a weather report from Jupiter. It's been a little bit stormy over there. Yeah, well, Jupiter has lightning um, just like Earth does, and it's li it has lots of lightning flashes. These are seen by the satellite that's currently orbiting um, Jupiter, uh, and we they can actually be detected from Earth as well. So it wasn't news that it has lightning. Uh, the satellite's able to uh, tell us a lot more about the altitude that the lightning's occurring at and uh, the conditions, the sort of storm conditions that is producing these lightning storms. Uh, and uh, they're going on kind of all the time, as they are on Earth. Mm. Um, and uh, <clears throat> basically the same processes, nothing's sort of fundamentally different, it's just that Jupiter is a much more massive object, 320 times more massive than the Earth, so there's a lot more gravitational energy, it spins faster, so everything's kind of scaled up. But I was surprised that the, the energy in the lightning is only around, each lightning strike is only around about double that of Earth, so Earth's lightning's pretty good on that scale compared with a, a huge planet like Jupiter. And it's happening around the poles. Yes, that's right, and, and uh, that, that's... Um, Again, you know, most of the lightning on Earth tends to occur around the equatorial belt, the central part, uh, not so much at the poles. But uh, so that's a bit, that's something that's different. Um, the other thing about lightning, it, it puts out a big flash of light, and of course, it's sort of the, it can also cause uh, thunder as well, which is the sound effect from the lightning strike. But it also produces radio waves. And uh, one of the interesting experiments I used to see people doing, I haven't seen it recently, but just with a very simple radio. Uh, parabolic dish maybe a couple of feet in diameter mm. um, and a little uh, the right sort of little sensor at its focus you can point it at Jupiter and uh, you can hear the crackle of the lightning strikes just like that it's a, it was a common little experiment done at schools and you mean, universities so just to demonstrate the that same sort of crackle you get on earth when you you know you're listening to to a frequency and very quickly for the lightning strike. That, yes, yes, that right. Listening, you can hear that uh, there's a sort of a lightning, uh, sort of thunderstorms are maybe 20, 30 kilometres away. Maybe you're not hearing the thunder. You're not mm. even seeing the flashes. But the first thing you get to know about it is you can hear the little crackles on your radio every mm. few seconds when it's an active one. That's right. Um, so you can, you know, it's quite easy to measure those with a simple apparatus uh, on Jupiter from Earth. Wow. Fascinating. Is that something that, um, do you have any of that gear up uh, up at the um, observatory? As far as I know, they don't. I might ask the educators whether they do, but I know that we used to have an educator there that uh, sort of had something like that, whether he he might have, uh, it might have been his own personal property years ago, so I don't think it's there anymore. Hayabusa is preparing to collect samples from the surface of the tiny asteroid Ryugu. Yes, uh, they're, they're just getting ready now. This is the JAXA, the Japanese Space Agency. They're yep. just getting ready. Uh, 
over the next few days and into early They were very October. close last week. They yes. were sort of within about 600 metres. Yeah, that was a test they came in, and now they're right. getting ready to release these landers now. And so it's, you know, in the next few weeks, we'll have a lot more to talk about about that. They're going to have pictures taken as they go down to the surface and back. Um, the objective is to try to recover a bit of the surface of this asteroid. It's a very primitive asteroid. Um, dating right back from the very earliest time of the solar system and the reason the scientists want to get bits of it is that it will tell us a lot more about how our solar system developed um, and the sort of stuff that we have in our bodies, amino acids and things like that, uh, you know, some of those stuff would have come from space and was probably in these rocks. What's fascinating about this is they're going to pick these rocks up, put them in a, a capsule to seal it because all the rocks we get from space uh, are damaged when they come through our, our atmosphere, but these will be pristine. That's right, exactly. So, uh, and in fact, the, the ones that we find on Earth, only a very small fraction are these really primitive ones. They're highly valued by scientists, but as you say, they've been cooked during the way they arrived on Earth. These are, have been obtained under perfect conditions from an asteroid that we can identify and we know what its orbit is and we know where, exactly where it came from and bring these samples back. And so it's uh, there's going to be a lot of great science out of the stuff over in five years' time when they get these samples back and be able to tell us what they're made of. So the Japanese are very close with Hayabusa 2 at Ryugu and NASA are also getting close to Bennu with OSIRIS-REx. Yes, that's closing in. I think the last I heard was that they are now within less than 200 million kilometres, which is quite close for Pretty us. Pretty close, yeah. 200. So it's... it's <laughs> um, 200 million kilometres? Yeah, I think... Two million, less. Sorry, a big pardon. Two million kilo, Two million. So it's it's come within less than two million kilometres now right. of of yep. the uh, of the asteroid that it's after, uh, and uh, it's expected to rendezvous. I think in the latter part of this year, maybe in uh, late November, early December. I think is the time it'll actually is going for orbital insertion. So that spacecraft will be certainly by Christmas be in orbit around. Uh, around Bennu and it's, it's got a similar objective it's also going to try to grab a, it'll explore the satellite it'll be taking a lot the asteroid will be taking a lot more time analyzing the surface and everything before going down then it's going to go down grab some and bring it back let's look to the sky now and discuss the naked eye planets it's a good time of year to be looking up at the moment because there's a lot of planets available to the naked eye yeah so the first thing you notice in the it's getting darker in the western sort of sky is uh, still fairly high up in the sky is venus very bright easily the brightest thing uh, um, in that part of the sky no doubt about it and it's got a bit closer now to jupiter or jupiter's got a bit closer to venus so the next planet up the sky is is Jupiter so those two together they're the two brightest planets in our solar system in our sky and so they're together at the same time in the evening sky that's kind of cool mm. um, a little higher up it's not so obvious but it's uh, it's it's not as prominent as, as Saturn and beyond that you you end up with uh, the planet Mars which is still we've passed the closest point to Mars we've passed that uh, um, a month or two ago, but now it's sort of, so it's gradually fading as it's falling behind us. The Earth sort of goes around quicker than Mars around its orbit, so we're leaving Mars behind. It'll gradually get dimmer. But if you draw a line between Jupiter, Venus, and Mars, imagine in, in your eye, then mm. you'll see you'll pick up Saturn basically in the same line across the sky. You'll see Saturn. Saturn's pretty much overhead, around about oh uh, about eight o'clock at night. If you look straight up, it's sort of a an, a uh, 
dim sort of orangey colour. So we go Venus up to Jupiter and then further in the east, the furthest in the east is Mars yeah. and that, that will become further and further east as we... Yeah, so gradually uh, well, the motion of Mars, it, it's, uh, well, it, uh, it, yeah, it's, it's basically, it, it's falling behind us um, but uh, just due to the geometry, these planets, they end, particularly Mars, can move across the sky then turn around and start moving the other way. That's in a, it's not changing its direction and its orbit it's just the perspective it's caused by our viewpoint on our planet moving mm. so uh, but uh, but they'll be going to be there for a while and i think in october um later in october will mercury will make a reappearance down in the low in the western sky below venus so we'll have all five naked eye planets visible again can you see the moons from Jupiter with uh, with binoculars or a telescope? Yeah, with binoculars it's certainly doable. If you've got a reasonable pair of binoculars and just hold them steady on a fence post or something and look at Jupiter, you'll see the moons of Jupiter. Your binoculars are miles better than the telescope Galileo. And Galileo was the first man to build a telescope and point it at Jupiter and see... 1609, Galileo. That's right. 1600s. Very good. 1609. And so his telescope was rubbish compared with anything you know, like even a cheap pair of binoculars. So and he saw them. And he saw them and he figured out what they were too. I mean, a lot of people would have looked at them and not sort of, sort of thought, well, that's a bit odd. So he just kept looking at them. He just thought they were stars near Jupiter. He didn't know what they were. But he, then he noticed that they were always there and always changing positions. And as he watched them and watched them and watched them over a period of time, he was able to work out that they must be orbiting around Jupiter. And that was a very important philosophical point because at that time, the sort of the prevalent idea was that everything orbited the Earth. Mm. Galileo mm. never believed that. I mean, that was and uh, so on. But that, he sort of was more had the Copernican idea that the sun was at the centre and the Earth was going around the sun. And so he was right. So he he was able to prove to the authorities that this these objects were orbiting Jupiter and were not orbiting around the Earth. What's happening up at the observatory at the moment? Uh, you mentioned there was a crane up there? What, oh, yeah. what, what's happening? Right, so uh, a few days ago uh, we've had a big crane uh, at the observatory to lift the, uh, the say, our famous Zeiss telescope off, off its mount. That's only the, the last time we did that was in 2003 for a big renovation um, and this is only the second time in 50 years we've done it. Uh, so it's uh, a lot of preparation going to dismantle a telescope and get everything ready. Uh, but it's uh, so the this time the dis we've taken it apart so we can upgrade the technology. So when it goes back together, the telescope will be under complete computer control. We'll be able to, from a computer through the internet, we'll be able to tell it where to point and uh, what to do. And we'll have different instruments and cameras on the back and eyepiece. You'll still be able to look through the telescope and look mm. at things like the moon or whatever. But um, we won't have to unclamp it, push this half-ton telescope around and pointed at things. It's and half a ton? Yeah, the how telescope weighs it? about 500 kilos. How big is it? Like, how long's the, the lens? Uh, it's around about uh, about two and a half metres, uh, the, the actual telescope structure. Yes. Um, and the mirror, the primary mirror, is half a metre across, 50 centimetres across. So it's uh, when it was installed in 1967, it was the biggest telescope in the country, and that was true until 1971. Mm. So for four years it was the biggest telescope. Well, it's pretty old. Yeah, it's, uh, it's still fantastic technology. I mean, the Germans, Zeiss, uh, do a fantastic job of building things and you just, when you're dealing with it as I am, you're sort of just in awe of the sort of thought and precision that's gone into it. So they're a fabulous instrument and uh, we hopefully we'll do it proud with what the upgrade that we're doing mm. um, and uh, probably in a... 
matter of the next next few months, it'll be back operational again. Um, mm. It'll be able to show people stuff over the internet. You'll be able to sort of look in and. Well, we can use it for some of our pictures of the week, perhaps. That's right. And so we can still visit the observatory during this time? Oh, yeah, yeah. They've still got the planetarium and there's a whole lot of uh, outdoor telescopes as well that uh, uh, still give you a fine view. Mm. Um, so it's just the Zeiss telescope that's off limits for a couple of months while we get this big job done. Dr Grant Christie, thank you very much. Graham, we'll be back with astronomy next Saturday night. This is the Weekend Variety Wireless. Curiosity not only killed the cat, it spawned a whole radio show. The Weekend Variety Wireless with Ryan Bradley in for Graham Hill on Radio Live. Nine o'clock is approaching here on Radio Live. News Hub not too far away. And then we will catch up with Max Cryer, who is waiting patiently outside the studio. He will come in with his weird and wonderful way... Oh, okay, quirky, Max, quirky and wonderful way and explain to us the words of the week. And, of course, you can be involved in that process by going on the Facebook page Weekend Variety Wireless or emailing us here at Radio Live on which word you would like to know the meaning of. And we have another five to look at this week, all chosen by you. So take part in the show and get in touch and we will find out well, we, Max, will find out the meaning to your particular word. Then we go catching up with Julia Croft, who has made the play Medusa. Very talented playwright, Julia Croft. Looking forward to hearing from her before 10 o'clock. After 10, human statistics with Jonathan Dodd. You have to separate opinion with fact. And tonight, 617 New Zealanders quizzed on political issues and the issues that concern them the most. Find out what they are. No slant, no bias, just the facts. With Jonathan Dodd from Ipsos New Zealand after 10 o'clock. James Crute is in to review the best kids' movies out at the moment. And then Gary Stone will talk to us at around 20 to 11, we'll link in with him from Australia to catch the latest financial news. GDP in New Zealand this week up to 1%, so the economy going very well in the face of low business confidence. What does all that mean for the financial markets and how should you apply this to your retirement savings, to your KiwiSaver? What does it mean? How is the financial markets in terms of the stock markets related to the property market those questions answered before 11 o'clock here on radio live always get a few texts through the text machine look if you're a flat earther why would you take any notice of the astronomy piece why would you bother why would you bother Clearly the Earth is not flat. I just don't have time for those conspiracy theorists. Yes, I will sit and listen and and probably research most of the conspiracies that are out there because I want to know if there's any truth in them. But I'm sorry. The science of astronomy and Dr Grant Christie, if you listen to him, that should be enough to disprove the flat Earth theory. So please... I mean, you can text and waste your time as much as you want, you flat earthers, but did you know, you know, Freddie Flintoff, that cricketer, he was a flat earther. 
That's right, Freddie Flintoff, Andrew Flintoff, the England cricketer. I thought he was smarter than that. Perhaps not, perhaps not, Mr Flintoff. Right, the latest in news and sport coming very shortly from News Hub. Max Cryer standing by. This is the Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live.